0: Retrogram. Revisiting TV futures from the past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 8644. Halloween L-X-X-X-V-I. Oops, sorry. Halloween 86, the week of October 26th, 1986. Welcome to Retrogram. Pick a week between 1970 and 1990, watch all of the sci-fi, horror, superhero, and fantasy shows that week, stir vigorously, and suddenly... The walls are dripping with this podcast. Halloween specials just bring out the best in a lot of shows, don't they? Not to mention they're usually big events, since the end of October frequently falls within the first week of the all-important November rating sweeps in the U.S. Put those together and you've got a recipe for big events. Just ask The Simpsons or Roseanne. But what if your show already deals with the creepy and the supernatural and the unexplainable? Does Halloween become just another day at the office? Let's rewind to the week of October 26, 1986, to find out. It's a pretty quiet week compared to the weeks to come after it. The Iran-Contra scandal is about to surface and blow up the news cycle in a big way. But for now, everyone's getting ready for the seventh and final game of the 86 World Series. Spoiler alert, not only will the Mets beat the Red Sox 8-5 to five in the seventh game... But that seventh game is going to beat out every show we'll be talking about in this podcast as the most-watched thing on television that week. Cindy Lauper is still topping the charts with true colors, and we, dear Retrogram listeners, are in for a spooky week. Tales from the Dark Side, Season 3, Episode 5, The Stacks This was a syndicated show airing the week of Sunday, October twenty-sixth, 1986. Meet the Hummels, a perfectly ordinary suburban family. Sam, his wife, Edith, and their little girl, Audrey, who is, at this very moment, in the middle of the most ear-wrenchingly bad violin practice session in human history in the Hummels' living room. It's getting close to 10 o'clock. Audrey should be in bed, but, she protests, she's not sleepy. Edith makes a deal with her. If Audrey will go to bed now, she can stay up late tomorrow night when her Uncle Richard is over for a visit. Deal done. The next evening, Audrey is going crazy. Uncle Richard brought something big with him. She wants to know what it is, because whatever it is, it's got to be more interesting than listening to grown-ups talk. It turns out to be a huge dollhouse, complete with a set of pretty fragile-looking porcelain dolls. Uncle Richard says he was showing an empty house to a prospective real estate buyer. Empty, except for this dollhouse. He couldn't just leave it there, so now it's Audrey's. Hooray! There are two men, a woman, and a little girl doll. Wow, that's kind of like the human population of the Hummel's house right now. Audrey gives them a name immediately. Meet the Giesenstacks. She even decides which doll corresponds to each of them, including herself. Uncle Richard's gift is a big hit. The next day, Edith is a bit late coming home, but Audrey's busy with the Giesenstacks. In fact, she says that Mrs. Giesenstack just bought a new coat with shiny buttons and a velvet collar, and then Edith walks in the front door wearing pretty much exactly the outfit that Audrey just described. Sam wants to know how Audrey knew about the new coat— but Audrey says she just made it up. Just like she's making up a story about Mr. Giesenstack getting sick and needing to stay home from work. The next morning, yeah, guess who's too sick to go to work? Sam still can't shake the feeling that something is really weird about Audrey's new dolls. The next night, Sam's over an hour late coming home from work. Edith's not too happy. Actually, she's very, very not too happy. And they get into a heated argument. Audrey suddenly announces that Mr. Giesenstack hit Mrs. Giesenstack really hard, in the head. But before she can tell her parents more of the story, Sam announces that he's really sick of hearing about the Giesenstacks. Edith gets on Sam's case for yelling at Audrey. He jumps up, but fortunately no hitting happens. Close one. The next time Uncle Richard visits, Sam unloads on him about Audrey's new dolls. What's the real story behind them? I mean, beyond just being left in an empty house... Richard says that's all he knows. Later that night, after Richard has gone home, Sam can't sleep, and he can't get his mind off the stacks. Another day passes, and Audrey is playing with the dolls again, inventing another kind of disturbing story. Sam flips out. He doesn't want to hear any more about dolls falling out of windows, or dying, or having a funeral. No more. Edith and Uncle Richard have to stop him before he snaps. To save Sam's sanity, Edith decides that the Giesenstacks and, and their dollhouse will have to be given away. Audrey is surprisingly okay with that. She's made up a story about the Gesenstacks going away on a long trip. The next day, Uncle Richard drops by. The house is empty. No furniture. No family. Just the dollhouse. Sam and Edith wake up to the sound of giant footsteps and what sounds like the voice of a giant calling their names. They sit up in bed terrified as the house shakes. In the empty house, Richard pries open the front of the dollhouse and sees the geeseen stacks sitting up in their bed. In the empty house, a real estate agent walks in and spots the abandoned dollhouse. She opens the front of it and finds a doll lying in the living room floor in front of a miniature model of the same dollhouse. She picks up the tiny dollhouse, opens it up, and there's a family of tiny stacks in there. And before you can say Inception, the end. Craig Wasson is one of those actors who was in just about everything between 1970 and the early 2000s. The Secrets of ISIS, Streets of San Francisco, The Rockford Files, MASH, L.A. Law, Kung Fu, The Legend, Continues, Murder, She Wrote... Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Walker, Texas Rangers, Seven Days, and the list goes on. His biggest splash on the big screen was probably his appearance as Neil in A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Tandy Cronin doesn't have a long list of TV credits, as a lot of her work has been on stage. She guest starred in Heart to Heart, Streets of Justice, and Law and Order. She's also an award-winning audiobook narrator and has read works by Ursula K. Le Guin, among others. Larry Pine is another actor with a wealth of stage experience, but quite a bit of TV as well. He was Mayor Burke in Gotham, and played Bob Birch in House of Cards. Most recently, he appeared in several episodes of Succession. Now, if the name Frederick Brown, originator of the short story on which this episode's script is based, sounds familiar, it's because he's an incredibly influential science fiction and mystery writer. One of his stories, Arena, was the inspiration for the script of the Star Trek episode of the same name during that show's first season. He specialized in really short fiction, packing surreal plot twists into works that spanned maybe all of three pages, but by all accounts he disliked the actual process of writing. Stephen King has said that he's a big fan of Brown's work. The short story that inspired this episode of Tales of the Dark Side was first published in 1943. Frederick Brown died in 1972. This is a cute, if somewhat predictable, little story, though part of the unpredictability seems to be the story itself, daring the audience to imagine how dark this could go, and then faking us out by not going all the way there itself. Oh, you thought the dad was going to hit the mom in the head? You really thought that was going to happen? Now who's the monster in the story? It's you, dear viewer. Now, that being said, thankfully, we are not dealing with Anthony Fremont here. That's the kid who would send anyone who displeased him into the cornfield in the classic Twilight Zone episode, It's a Good Life. Incidentally, he grew up and he's now the President of the United States. It would have been so easy to put Audrey in control of everyone's lives here from a story-writing standpoint, but instead we see that the adults around her have their own agency, which raises the possibility, at least until the end of the story, that we're dealing with the power of suggestion. But, no, we're dealing with a dollhouse that looks like it has claimed more than one set of victims. You know who really needs to come pick up that dollhouse? Mickey and Ryan and Jack from Curious Goods. But, alas, it's only 1986, so it'll be another year before Friday the 13th the series is on the air, so that dollhouse has a whole year ahead of it to destroy even more families. Jeez, my Kenner Death Star never did that. Just saying. Starman, Episode 5, Secrets, aired Friday, October 31st, 1986, on ABC. The story so far. He was an alien whose people had intercepted one of the Voyager space probes and absorbed the wealth of information the Golden Record contained about life on Earth. So they sent him there to investigate further. He took the form of a recently deceased human, but could only keep that body for a week and what a week it was, scaring the heck out of the man's widow, evading government authorities on a crazy chase from Wisconsin to Meteor Crater, Arizona, where his people eventually came back to retrieve him. But he left his mark on earth. The woman who drove him cross-country fell in love with him, again, even though he obviously wasn't her late husband, and when his people came back for him she was pregnant with his child." Now, fourteen years later, the alien returns to Earth and inhabits the body of dead photographer Paul Forrester to check on his son, and it turns out that young Scott Hayden has had a bumpy road in life and is looking for his own mother. The alien, posing as Paul, agrees to help Scott in his search, but has already gotten the attention of a determined government agent named George Fox, and once again, Starman and son are on the run. Paul and Scott have stopped to spend the night in an L.A. hotel room where Scott's making dinner. Well, if you call popcorn dinner. His father observes that this is a surprisingly noisy way to prepare a meal, though he kind of loves the results. Although he thought popcorn grew that way, he had no idea it was up to humans to explode it for themselves. Outside, however, things are about to get surprisingly noisy as well. Agent Fox and his men, in an unmarked white van, are not only checking their guns, but loading darts up with the contents of a couple of hypodermic needles. Fox and one agent will knock on the door of their target's hotel room, while one man with a rifle loaded with the drugged darts will pick off Paul and Scott when they naturally take to the fire escape to get away. But the sniper's noisy climb up the fire escape gives away the game. Fox and his men raid an empty hotel room. Paul and Scott, in the meantime, are riding away, having jumped into the back of a garbage truck, before jumping out again several blocks away to keep moving on foot. So much for the hotel room, they wind up spending the night in a stairwell with the rest of the homeless. They wake up in the morning, groggy and discombobulated, because, hey, a stairwell isn't really the finest of lodging. They make plans to get out of Los Angeles as quietly as possible, but the news report playing on a bunch of televisions in an electronics shop stops them in their tracks. Coming up, a story of Jenny Hayden, a woman who claims she had a child by a man from another planet. It turns out that she has gone on the run from a local hospital, and authorities are worried she'll wind up on Skid Row. The two walk to the TV station that ran the news report to ask the reporter if perhaps anything was left out of her report. But she says that what was said on the air is all she knows. She does advise them to check out a halfway house called the Sunrise House. Jenny might have gone there. On the way to the Sunrise House, Scott says he hopes they don't find her there, that they don't find her completely destitute. At the Sunrise House, they're greeted by a woman taking care of an old man who recently got out of the hospital, but has no home to go to. Scott shows her the picture of Jenny from his wallet, and she's instantly suspicious— She wants to know where Paul and Scott are from, and why they're looking for this woman. So she has seen Jenny. The woman, Angela, says they should go somewhere, grab a bite, and talk. So she's not going to take them to her yet. As it turns out, Angela doesn't know where Jenny is, but they did spend a lot of time together. She knows where all of Jenny's Hollywood hangouts are. Let's just hit every one of them until we run into her. That's all Paul and Scott need to hear. Let's go." In another hotel room, a swankier one than we started this story in, Agent Fox and his cohorts are watching a replay of the news report that got Paul and Scott's attention. Surely, Fox says, they've seen this by now. A full day of searching for Jenny in Hollywood has proven fruitless. Angela offers Paul and Scott room and board at Sunrise House, and while Scott claims he's not tired and wants to keep looking, as soon as food hits his stomach, he's out. "'Angela says the boy will be safe here and offers to help Paul keep looking. "'While they walk, they talk about Jenny and what her life was like after she was left on Earth. "'They find their way to an empty open-air theatre where Angela does a little monologue from King Lear, "'only to discover that Paul doesn't know what applause is, much less know who the bard is. "'In fact, Angela's so lost in the moment she's kind of forgotten who they're looking for. "'Jenny? Oh, oh yeah, Jenny!' Yes, she liked the stage, too, but she was strictly little theater. Scott wakes up at Sunrise House to the sound of another news report. Apparently Jenny Hayden has readmitted herself to the hospital. Scott scribbles a note and leaves it for Paul. Mom's back in the hospital. I'm going to the hospital. Meet me there. And he's off. Who's watching from a white van as Scott walks up to the hospital? Fox and his men. Inside, Scott meets a hospital porter who seems helpful enough but then locks him in an office. The trap is sprung. Fox walks into the office and introduces himself. He wants to know where Paul Forrester is. Walking back to the halfway house, Angela has a secret to share with Paul, but first she wants to plant a huge kiss on him. Inside they find Scott's note and rush to the hospital, but Paul quickly spots Fox's van, and he and Angela duck into the bushes. He needs Angela to tell him where Jenny's hospital room is, though he can't exactly show himself at the front desk, so Angela shows him an underground entrance that leads to the hospital boiler room. Once inside, he follows the directions Angela gives him, and winds up in a recreation room for the hospital's mental patients, including a teenager that Scott met before being captured. He slips out with Paul when he leaves, and leads him to the observation room where he can see Scott, and the government agent left to guard Scott through a two-way mirror. The kid notices that Paul uses a glowing sphere to open locked doors and do other things. Why not just use that to kill the government agent and break Scott out? Paul blows that idea off. That would be silly. I'm not here to hurt anyone. Instead, Paul uses it to manipulate a model of a human skull mounted on a stand, first to turn it, then to cause its jaw to move, and then to send it sailing through the air at the agent. Hey, happy Halloween, bub. Scott uses the distraction to escape with Paul and finally go to Jenny Hayden's hospital room. Inside, there is a woman looking out the window. She's kind of all dressed up, not hospital garb at all. It's Angela, not Jenny. And she's just acting another part. She's as much a mental patient as anyone else on this floor. But she's internalized everything she's heard Paul and Scott say about Jenny so she can become Jenny, so someone will love her and miss her as much as they loved and missed Jenny. Paul realizes Jenny probably never was here. The story was planted by Fox from the beginning, and Angela, an escaped mental patient herself, just got caught up in the middle of it. But she offers to help them get out of the hospital unnoticed, so long as they call her Jenny. Scott's not having it, but Paul plays along, just long enough to escape. Father and son evade Fox and his agents and hit the road again. The end. Until next week. Based on the John Carpenter movie, which premiered in 1984, the TV series, which premiered in the fall 1986 television season, was created by James Henderson and James Hirsch and Mike Gray and John Mason. Henderson and Hirsch Productions logo shows up at the end, so let's start there. As a writer, James Henderson turned in scripts for Lassie, I Dream of Jeannie, The Flying Nun, Combat, Love on a Rooftop, and Bewitched, among others. And he was a producer on numerous TV movies of the week, as well as Starman and the brief attempt to adapt the movie Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice for TV. James G. Hirsch has many more producer and executive producer credits under his belt. Kingston Confidential, The Incredible Hulk, the UPN series The Burning Zone, Nash Bridges, and HBO's Rome series, along with a very healthy number of TV movies of the week. The Incredible Hulk connection is interesting because I'd say that structurally The Incredible Hulk and Starman both share a lot in common. Main characters on the run, someone pursuing them wherever they go, and you can trace that general series format all the way back to The Fugitive, with Dr. Kimball looking for the one-armed man and forever being on the run from Lieutenant Gerard. So it makes sense that you'd see a writer or producer from one graduating to another series with a similar format, because from a writing standpoint, getting the tension of that chase to sustain without just getting silly or turning into, you know, stop that pigeon now, that's quite a feat. And do you know who else worked on The Fugitive? Mike Gray, another producer credited with developing Starman as a TV format. Only he was a second-unit director on the 1993 Harrison Ford big-screen version of The Fugitive, which hadn't happened yet. As a writer, Mike Gray burst onto the scene in 1979 when he co-wrote the script to a little movie called The China Syndrome, but he racked up only a few writing credits after that, including one episode each of Starman and Star Trek The Next Generation, both shows of which he was also a producer. And on both of those episodes, his co-writer was John Mason, also a producer on Starman and Star Trek The Next Generation, though many of John Mason's other credits are in the categories of editing, art direction, and other pre- and post-production jobs. Mike Gray died in 2013. Now, the scene where uh, Paul and Scott escape in the garbage truck, it is really lucky for them that every last bit of trash in that truck was neatly bagged, and that they didn't wind up reeking to high heaven by the time they left the truck on foot. Given the format of Starman on TV, whether you're comparing it to The Incredible Hulk or The Fugitive, this is a nice little story playing a very effective game of is-she-or-isn't-she with the female guest star. Is Jenny Hayden such a broken person now that she has multiple personalities? Or is Angela just making it all up? We're really at the end of the story before we get a definitive answer. Robert Hayes is just amazing in this show. I'm a huge fan of his work going all the way back to Airplane, but the great thing about Airplane was that the Zucker brothers insisted upon everyone in that movie playing the comedy Deadly Serious. You have to be a really good actor to pull that off. Hayes was the heart of Airplane, and he's the heart of this show as well. His performance just oozes compassion, kindness, occasional bewilderment, and he wears the heart of his character on his sleeve and on his face. I can't imagine anyone else could possibly have led this series. It's tailor-made for his impressive acting skills, and I'm still a huge fan of his work. Star Wars Ewoks Season 2 Episode 8 The Season Scepter Aired Saturday morning, November 1st, on ABC. The story so far. On the forest moon of the planet Endor are the Ewoks. Lovable, cuddly, fiercely determined to protect themselves. They're like teddy bears with primitive tools and sharp implements. But this is years before Luke Skywalker and his rebel friends ever set foot on their world. And with all of the natural and occasionally supernatural predators already inhabiting the woods around them, the Ewoks have plenty of wonders to witness, and plenty of battles to fight. Two young female Ewoks, Nisa and Latara, are enjoying soaking up the summer sun on the shores of a lake, when Wicket surfs past them on an enormous leaf, soaking them in water instead. Wicket's friend Tebow, who's been trying to practice magic, offers to whip up a warm breeze to dry the girls off, but instead he calls forth something a bit more gale force. And then the snow kicks in, and it's a blizzard. So much for sunbathing. Not only does Tebow not know how to stop the wintry winds, he confesses he doesn't really know how he caused the weather to change in the first place. Wicket knows trouble when he sees it, and he tells his friends they need to go find the leader of the Ewok tribe, Master Logray. While the Ewoks shiver through the freezing wind to go home, Odra and the Snow King are plotting to steal the Ewok's mystical Sunstar. The Snow King is using something called the Season Scepter to change the weather on a whim and, at Odra's urging, he adds some violent lightning to the blizzard, just to scare the Ewoks that little bit more out of their minds. At the Ewok village, Tebow is still worried that he's caused all this trouble. Logre is nowhere to be found, not in his hut, and not in the observatory hut at the top of the trees. The Sun Star is there, though, and it's glowing with a familiar face, the Leaf Queen asking for help with the unexpected onset of winter. She asks Logray to hurry to the Palace of the Sun King, but Logre isn't there. Wicket decides to undertake the journey himself, and Nisa, Latara, and Tebow go with him, flying over the snow in a flying leaf sent by the Leaf Queen. On the way they see other residents of the forest moon of Endor struggling to cope with the early winter, worrying whether they'll even survive it. The Snow King and Odra become aware that the Ewoks are on their way to the Sun King, and the Snow King sends his minions, the Ice Heads, to stop them from ever getting there. The Iceheads grab Nisa, and the other Ewoks crash the Flying Leaf after fighting off the remaining Iceheads. When they try to rescue Nisa, however, the Iceheads cause an avalanche, and the Ewoks can't reach her. They decide to finish the journey to the Sun King and ask for his help. It is only here that the Leaf Queen lets Tebow off the hook. The early harsh winter wasn't his doing, though Wicket would appreciate it if Tebow would stop dabbling in magic. The Sun King needs the Sun Star to put an end to the winter by thawing his brother's heart. But Wicket and the Ewoks didn't bring it with them. In fact, they're nowhere to be found, because they've taken the flying leave to go to the Snow King's palace to rescue Nisa and retrieve the Season Scepter. But Nisa has been turned into a block of ice, a hostage to force Logray to hand over the Sun Star. Wicket tries to trick the Snow King into dropping the Scepter, but the plan falls apart until Tebow winds up with the Scepter, more by accident than anything else, and begins melting the ice and causing plants and flowers to grow all over the Snow King's castle. He eventually thaws the Snow King's heart, which breaks Odra's hold over him. Nisa is unfrozen, and the Snow King restores the weather to what it should be, the sunny season, and he hands the season scepter back to its rightful holder, the Sun King. Winter is coming, but not today. The End This episode of Ewoks was written by Bob Corral. Bob has had an impressive career writing for children's television, and this is still very early in his career. That career started with co-writing the first live-action Ewoks movie, Caravan of Courage, a.k.a. The Ewok Adventure, in 1984. In all, he wrote 14 segments of the Ewoks series, and then moved on to such shows as Alvin and the Chipmunks, Tiny Toon Adventures, Maniac Mansion, Dragon Tales, Clifford the Big Red Dog and now this one surprised me he is one of the very very few outside writers to have contributed any material to home star runner that's quite a career when it includes some of my favorites and some of my kids' favorites okay a little memo to disney here it's way the hell past time we got the ewoks and droids animated series released on dvd or added to that fancy new disney streaming service that's starting here in a little bit or something a handful of episodes of each show have been edited into movies for a single DVD release that's now out of print, and that's it. I had to go looking under some rocks on the Internet, the kind of rocks that one resorts to when stuff hasn't been officially released, just to cover this episode. I'm sure the writers and voice artists who made these shows would really like to make some money, and I'd be more than happy to throw my money at them, and at you, Disney, for a decent quality copy of both shows. I'm already signed up so I can watch The Mandalorian, so how about it? It's not like I'm asking for the Star Wars Holiday Special on DVD or anything. But that does merit a mention, because the animation for both the droid series and the first season of Ewoks was done by Canadian animation studio Nirvana, also responsible for the infamous animated segment of the 1978 Star Wars Holiday Special that first put Boba Fett on our screens. Oddly enough, despite being the less futuristic and less pew-pew of the two shows, Ewoks is the series that ran for two seasons, while Droids had only a single season and a one-off final special. That's just not the outcome I would have expected. Could it be that an entire generation of self-appointed film critics who held up the Ewoks as being a specimen of everything that's wrong with the Star Wars franchise weren't there at the time, and don't remember that the Ewoks were, in fact, hugely popular. Now, sure, the flip side of that is that the Care Bears were also hugely popular at the time, and sure, the Ewoks' life beyond Return of the Jedi, in the form of two live-action TV movies and two animated seasons on TV, may have been Lucasfilm tapping into the pop culture mindset of the time, but that doesn't change the fact that the Ewoks were, in fact, hugely popular. They weren't exactly the death of Star Wars, a series of movies made largely for kids and the young at heart, by a long shot. But this was season two, and Nelvana was no longer doing the animation, which had been brought back to the U.S., which meant that both Lucasfilm and ABC had more direct influence on story content. The voice cast changed, the thrust of the stories refocused on the core of the four main characters seen in this episode. and. Then the series got canceled, even though the writers were already coming up with ideas for a third season. As far as how otherworldly it all is, The Sun King is played as a stereotypical Southern California beach bum, complete (laughs) with saying, Bummer, dudes. The Ice Heads, the minions of the Snow King, uh, you can hear them singing the O-E-O song from The Wizard of Oz in the background. There really isn't much to dig into with the story of this episode. There are lots of obvious nods to The Wizard of Oz, but there's no particular moral to the story. I do kind of like how long Tebow is still on the hook, feeling like everything is his fault. That's what he gets for dabbling in magic that he really doesn't understand. The Real Ghostbusters, Season 1, Episode 8, When Halloween Was Forever, aired Saturday morning, November 1st, on ABC. The story so far. Surely you've heard of the Ghostbusters, right? Peter Venkman, Ray Stantz, Egon Spengler, and Winston Zeddemore are professional paranormal investigators and eliminators, Basically running a supernatural pest control business, any time there's even a whiff of unwanted menaces from beyond the realm of the living in New York City, they dive into the ectomobile and pay a house call and try to contain it. But for right now, it's almost Halloween, and Winston and Venkman have just about had it. They're putting in some serious overtime on the ghost-catching front. With news cameras rolling and reporters and an anxious public waiting, the Ghostbusters emerge victorious with their latest catch, but only just. Back at Ghostbusters HQ, they talk it over. Each case is tougher than the one before it. Egon has a theory. A touring exhibition of seventh-century relics from Ireland marked a sudden jump in the Big Apple's ghost activity, and those relics date back from the very beginning of what has, over the centuries, become the modern Halloween tradition. Cut to the aforementioned touring exhibition of seventh-century Irish relics. A couple of goblin-like critters burst in through a window, trace an infinity symbol across the surface of the relics, utter the name Samhain, and cue all hell breaking loose. No, seriously, the biggest relic now has an evil glowing face, and then the relic bursts apart, revealing a robed figure with a head not unlike a jack-o'-lantern. It ascends into the air and passes through the museum's skylight like it's not even there. Everywhere this cloaked spirit flies through the city, clock-faces become very literal, malevolent faces. Gargoyles spring to life. More of the goblin-like creatures appear, terrorizing the city. Two of them show up at the Ghostbusters' front door, where Janine assumes they're a pair of kids who have really brought their trick-or-treating A-game, and quickly finds out otherwise. The guys grab their gear and rush outside, finding a ring of glowing spirits circling a nearby building where they've been summoned by Sam Haines. In fact, he's sending out an irresistible call to all things not of this world—a call even Slimer can't refuse. But since Slimer does try to fight it, he draws Sam Haines' unwelcome attention. The Ghostbusters go on an all-night ghost-catching binge, and yet it seems like they're not really making a dent in New York City's spirit population. Worse yet, the news is filled with reports that, regardless of which side of the Earth is facing the sun. Night has fallen across the entire world. Egon says time is slowing down. But they've gotten Samhain's attention. He wants to know why his minions are being bothered. He's slowing down time so it'll be Halloween night forever, because Samhain hates daylight. That gives Egon an idea, and he leaves Venkman, Winston, and Ray to distract Samhain while he puts his plan into action. They plan to distract Samhain with the frontal attack he's expecting, but they don't expect to find that he's holding Slimer hostage. Just in time, Egon's plan lights up the city. He's connected a bunch of portable spotlights to the generator on his proton pack, turning Halloween night into day. Samhain and his minions are sucked into the ghost trap. The faces on the clocks turn back into what you'd expect a clock face to look like, and the hands of the clock move past midnight. It's November 1st, and Halloween, much like Samhain's reign, is over. And Slimer, by the way, is back to normal. The end. Just for the record, Hain would return in later episodes of the series, and starting in season four, he's even in the opening credits. I really like that this episode, where November 1st marks the end of the crisis, This episode aired on November 1st, so if you were a particularly impressionable kid, I could see where that might add a little creep factor to it. Was this all happening while you were finally crashing after your Halloween sugar high? And there's something pretty scary about the fact that after somehow becoming the Ghostbusters' pet, Slimer could still be turned against them by a more powerful entity from the spirit world. Poor Slimer. I really thought he'd had it in this episode. Really, to the best of my recollection, this is really one of the riskiest situations Slimer has ever put in, where you really think he's in danger. Most of the time, Slimer's the real Ghostbusters comic relief. Here, Samhain's going to make him disappear forever. The whole episode really has an impressive creep factor for Saturday morning TV. Who do we have to thank for that? The episode was written by J. Michael Straczynski. Legendary TV, movie, and comics writer Joe Straczynski was just a few years into his storied career as an animation writer here. He had started working on He-Man and the Masters of the Universe in 1984, slid over to She-Ra, and went to work on Jace and the Wheeled Warriors before graduating to a live-action series for kids, Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. He continued contributing scripts to the real Ghostbusters, even after he was ousted from the series as a regular writer, after penning an explosive article for Penthouse Magazine revealing that the studio and network wanted Janine, for example, to be a stereotypical, helpful female-supporting character and not have the attitude that Janine had in the first Ghostbusters movie. That article was it for Joe as an animation writer. He went on to write and edit scripts for Jake and the Fat Man, Murder, She Wrote, Walker, Texas Ranger, and he was the driving force behind the third and final season of the 1980s Twilight Zone revival. It was while working on that show that he started to have a series of ideas that eventually became part of the first series he created on his own, the much loved and Hugo winning syndicated sci fi series Babylon 5, in its various TV movie spin offs. He's gone on to co-create the series Sense8 for Netflix and has written movies such as Changeling, Thor, and World War Z, all while maintaining a busy slate of writing comics, both his own creations, and high-profile characters in both the DC and Marvel stables. Most recently, he's written his autobiography, titled Becoming Superman. You could tell right away that Lorenzo Music is the voice of Peter Venkman, because Peter sounds a lot like Garfield. And, fittingly, for the brains of the operation, Egon is voiced by Maurice LaMarche, better known as the voice of the brain, from Pinky and the Brain. But the biggest name among the show's regular voice cast was undoubtedly Arsenio Hall as Winston Zeddemore. Now, to put this in context in Arsenio's career, he had done only a handful of TV roles prior to voicing Winston, with his one movie gig being an almost wordless cameo in one of the sketches in the comedy sketch film Amazon Women on the Moon. He only provided Winston's voice for the real Ghostbusters' first two seasons because in 1988 he moved on to a movie that would be the beginning of a stellar career, and that movie was called Coming to America. That was followed by his own talk show and quite a few other roles in movies and TV. The real Ghostbusters were early days for Arsenio and he's probably the most recognizable name to be associated with Doctor Who's Season 23, Episode 9, The Trial of a Time Lord, Part 9, aired Saturday evening, November 1st, on BBC One in the UK. The story so far. The Doctor is a Time Lord on the run from his home planet, Gallifrey, and his people, the Time Lords. He stole a TARDIS, a time machine bigger on the inside than out, and wanders the universe with his usually human companions, righting wrongs, occasionally defending Earth from alien invasions at various points along the history of the human race, and trying to defeat evil wherever he finds it. But this season the Doctor is trapped aboard a Time Lord space station fighting for his life. An Inquisitor has begun hearing arguments from a mysterious prosecutor known only as the Valyard, charging the Doctor with interfering with the universe to the detriment of a great many innocent lives. In fact, in just the previous episode, the Doctor discovered that the reason he arrived alone on the Time Lord's station is that his traveling companion, Perry, died at the end of the adventure that they were in the middle of when the Time Lords brought the Doctor and the TARDIS here. Her death may have happened precisely because of the timing of the Time Lord's irresistible summons. He's shocked and outraged to the core of his being, and now it's time for him to argue his own defense. In an unprecedented move, the Doctor has peered into his own future to present the court with an adventure proving that his wanderings in time and space are mostly beneficial. He'll be presenting highlights from an adventure that for him has yet to happen. The story starts on the Hyperion three, a passenger space liner orbiting the planet Mogar in the year 2986, and it begins with an ordinary enough scene— a passenger complaining that her luggage hasn't made it to her cabin. It's a simple enough misunderstanding. Professor Lasky's luggage was sent to cabin nine, not cabin six. She leaves in a huff, much to the amusement of security officer Rudge and Janet, the concierge. Anyway, next passenger. A man just checking in and picking up his key is called out by an elderly fellow-passenger, Mr. Hallett, isn't it? I remember you investigating some big scandal on the planet. Well, never mind. The new passenger says his name is Grenville, not Hallett. I think you're mistaken. And he rushes off to his room, quickly, embarrassed. This scene concerns Professor Lasky and her entourage, two fellow scientists named Bruckner and Doland, An investigator, here? What's up with that? She sends Bruckner to double-check this sensitive cargo they've brought aboard with them. Meanwhile, already in the cargo bay, it's Grenville, or is it Hallett? He quietly puts on hazmat gear and, without a word to anyone, and without drawing attention to himself, slides into the ranks of the ship's cargo handlers. Since he's suited up out of sight, no one has any reason to suspect anything. Really an odd thing to do if you've booked passage on a passenger ship, but okay. On the bridge Commodore Travers and his navigator get word. The precious metal cargo from Mogar has been loaded. The Hyperion Three is ready to go. Next stop, Earth. But not soon enough for some of the passengers. Janet is taking coffee to the crew members stuck working in the staff-only communication center in the bowels of the ship when she's accosted by a Mogarian, you know, from the planet Mogar. The earthly environment of the Hyperion 3 isn't suitable for Mogarians, and they have to wear a protective suit. Also, they have to use a translator unit, and this Mogarian's translator isn't on. When reminded to use it, he wants to know why they're leaving late. Turns out there was a last-minute passenger from Mogar, just like him. The communications officer is almost excited. Something unexpected has turned up on the scope. He's not interested in what Janet thinks it might be, because, you know, she's a woman. That's her cue to leave the coffee and the communications officer and be elsewhere but almost as soon as she's gone, someone else enters the communications room, administers some kind of high-tech hypo to knock out the officer working there, and begins messing with the comm controls. Elsewhere in time and space, in the TARDIS to be precise, the doctor's new companion is putting him through his paces on an exercise bike. Meet Melanie. She's a perfectly normal, perfectly human exercise freak, and she thinks the doctor has put on a bit of weight but before she can force him to drink one more drop of healthy carrot juice, the TARDIS picks up a distress signal, but with only a partial emergency message attached. Imperative traitor be identified before landing on earth. Mayday ends. The TARDIS follows the signal and lands in the cargo bay of the Hyperion Three. The doctor says the reason the TARDIS had such an easy time landing on target for once is that the signal was sent specifically to him. But before the doctor and Melanie have a chance to investigate further, security guards show up, guns drawn. Really, this is the kind of welcome the doctor is accustomed to. On the bridge of the Hyperion III, Commodore Travers and Rudge are questioning the communications officer about his recent blackout. The equipment might have been used, but not sabotaged, and in any case, any recordings of the goings-on in communications mysteriously stopped working just before the officer says he was knocked out and into the middle of this scene walks the Doctor and Melanie and their security escort. Before Rudge can accuse them of stowing away, it seems that the Doctor and Commodore Travers recognize each other. They've met before in an adventure that Travers remembers less than fondly. In fact, when the Doctor offers to get back in the TARDIS and leave, Travers says he'd rather have the Doctor where he can keep an eye on him, since he seldom arrives without trouble in his wake. Travers didn't authorize the distress signal— so trouble is already here. Rudge isn't happy with any of this. He's on the verge of retiring, and this is his last flight. A pair of stowaways on board isn't going to boost his bonus. Travers is less worried, though. He orders Rudge not to get in the doctor's way, because the doctor has a better chance of finding out what's behind the attack on the communications officer and the unauthorized distress call than Rudge does on his own. This doesn't sit well with the chief of security. In the cargo hold, there's a whole area walled off, with signs forbidding the presence of high-intensity light. A Mogarian pockets a bunch of pill-shaped silver seeds and leaves the restricted area. In the passenger lounge, the doctor is worried about the distress call, the communications officer being assaulted, all of it. Melanie's enthusiastic. She wants to help solve whatever mystery is in progress here. But the doctor is unusually circumspect and doesn't seem to want to get involved this time. Something doesn't add up. Among the things that don't add up, that Mulgarian who just left the cargo area is watching the two time-travelers from a mezzanine level in the lounge. Melanie's urge to wander around and poke into things just leads her to bump into Rudge. She tries to play it off. Hey, is there a gym on this ship where she can work out a bit? It turns out there is, and Rudge is happy to lead her there. Professor Lasky is there, too. Remember her? Doland rushes into the gymnasium with an urgent message. Someone's broken into the hydroponics center. He and Lasky take off almost at a dead run, but Melanie doesn't know why, because she had headphones on. Her workout music is interrupted by a voice. Meet me in cabin six. Professor Lasky, Bruckner, and Doland investigate the break-in. Fortunately, none of the pods in the light-sensitive area have been damaged. Whew. Those pesky pods, those pesky... Vaguely human-sized pods. You know what has been tampered with? Someone's taken the Demeter seeds. This seems to worry all three of them. Melanie lets the doctor know about this message, but he has a feeling it's a trap, and he refuses the invitation. She goes to investigate Cabin 6 on her own. It's a mess, and she's not alone. An interior door opens. Oh, well, it's the doctor. I guess he couldn't refuse the invitation after all. He spots a small pile of silver seeds on a nightstand, a single shoe left lying around. Like I said, a mess. He wonders what happened, and that's when the alarms go off all over the ship. The doctor bumps into Janet in the corridor outside and gets a rushed explanation about an accident in the waste disposal area. But it's no accident. Another crew member has been attacked. Rudge and Travers are already on the scene, and all the evidence points to someone having been shoved into the waste incinerator. Whoever that happened to, they're dead, and their remains have already been dumped overboard. It's murder, and all that was left was a shoe. The doctor and Melanie arrive, and the doctor seems grimly unsurprised that the shoe is an exact match for the one in cabin six. Rudge says that cabin six was Mr. Grenville's cabin. "'Remember Grenville, who another passenger thought was named Hallett? "'That's odd. "'But the doctor reckons that's the end of the evidence trail, "'and he seems ready to call the investigation done. "'Melanie isn't so sure, "'and when she says she's going to continue snooping, "'the doctor sullenly lets her go off to wander into danger on her own. "'Not so fast. Stop the tape. "'Back in the Time Lord courtroom, "'the doctor says he doesn't remember that scene happening that way.' The Inquisitor points out that they've been watching events from the Doctor's future. Of course you don't remember events that haven't happened yet. But the Doctor has already watched these events from his future, and that's not how it's going to happen. The Valyard can't resist chiming in. Hey, maybe we're watching the Doctor letting another of his companions die. The Inquisitor tightens the screws. Either the Doctor is submitting all of this as evidence, or he has no evidence and no case either start the tape again or admit legal defeat. Since his future regenerations stand to be forfeited if he loses the trial, the doctor has no choice but to press play again. Back to the Hyperion Three. Melanie is poking around in the cargo bay, unauthorized and very much unassisted. When she's spotted by the communications officer, she pours on the charm. Could he possibly give her a tour of the hydroponics area? What's going on in there, anyway?' The charm offensive obviously works, and the tour is on. The comms officer explained that the famed agronomist Sarah Lasky is transporting some highly sensitive vegetation samples in the hydroponics area. I can let you look, but don't touch. But as soon as he touches anything inside the walled-off, low-light-only hydroponics area, he's electrocuted. Electricity arcs through the air, setting off explosions and hitting the huge vegetable pods. Something punches through one of the pods, Something not unlike a hand, the communications officer is dead meat, and Melanie is frozen in terror, unable to do anything but scream, and to be continued. Entire books, DVD, and Blu-ray bonus features, and podcasts have covered at great length the state of Doctor Who in 1986. To put it very simply, the show was in trouble. It had narrowly survived a very public cancellation attempt in 1985 when Michael Grade, the controller of BBC One, had it yanked from the schedule, and then later backpedaled in the face of a massive public backlash. Doctor Who returned in 1986 after a year and a half off the schedule, now reduced to only 14 25-minute episodes per year, with a general understanding that heads would roll if it hadn't improved. With that in mind, showrunner John Nathan Turner and script editor Eric Sayward scrapped the entire season that had been written already, asking their writers to submit new stories that would fit within the umbrella of the Doctor being held on trial by his fellow Time Lords. A bit of meta-storytelling there, since Doctor Who itself was clearly on trial as well. The season consisted of three four-part stories and a two-part finale, but every episode was titled The Trial of a Time Lord Part insert number between 1 and 14 here. The head that much of hardcore fandom expected to roll was that of John Nathan Turner, who had been in charge of Doctor Who since 1980, but instead his was one of the only heads that didn't roll after the 23rd season. Eric Sayward, who had been Nathan Turner's right-hand man riding herd on each season's stories since 1982, left before the 23rd season was even finished, and worse yet, long-time Doctor Who writer Robert Holmes, a much-loved fixture of the series since the late 1960s, died before completing the two-part season finale. Holmes had discussed the direction he wanted to go in with Sayward, but Sayward had jumped ship and taken that information with him. The writers of this third four-part story under the trial umbrella had the unenviable task of completing the story with very little direction, other than to avoid the fatalistic shock ending that Holmes and Sayward had discussed, since they had felt it was likely that the end of Trial of a Time Lord might be the series finale as well. John Nathan Turner didn't want the season's final act to offer an ending to the series, because that might make it altogether too easy for the BBC to cancel Doctor Who as soon as the season was over. While Doctor Who was spared the acts at the end of this shaky 1986 season, the Doctor himself wasn't. Colin Baker became the only leading actor of Doctor Who ever to be terminated from the role. Not because of any misbehavior on his part, but simply because Michael Grade didn't care for his portrayal, his costume, or anything about his era of the show. Firing the current Doctor and causing more scandal and controversy was really just another attempt to get the whole thing canceled. But it failed John Nathan Turner would remain for three more years, bringing in a new Doctor and a new script editor for the 1987 season, but more on that story another time. Again, to put it mildly, these were very troubled times for Doctor Who, unlike anything that the series has endured before or since. Parts 9 through 12 of The Trial of a Time Lord were written by Pip and Jane Baker. Philip and Jane Baker were a husband-and-wife writing team who had been contributing to Doctor Who since that fateful 1985 season. But their careers as TV writers stretched back to the early 60s with a TV adaptation of a stage play they had written. They wrote for The Pursuers, an episode of Space 1999, Zed Cars, and in the early 90s created their own series for CBBC, the BBC Children's Programming Channel, called Watt on Earth, as in Watt as a Measurement of Electricity. Jane Baker died in 2014. Bonnie Langford makes her first appearance here as Melanie. She had been acting since the age of six, though her first credited screen role was in Alan Parker's 1976 film Bugsy Malone, when she was only twelve. The following year she joined London Weekend Television's new kids' series Just William, co-starring as the obnoxious Violet and becoming something of an overnight sensation in the process. It would have been really easy for her to just become an answer to a trivia question or two at that point, so she concentrated on dancing and stage work for several years, including appearing on Broadway. Doctor Who was really her next major TV role. This was an unusual move both for Bonnie and for Doctor Who. Stunt casting for guest roles was one thing, but this was an unusual case of stunt casting for an ongoing regular role. Maybe think of Bonnie as the Billy Piper before Billy Piper. More recently, she spent several years as regular on the BBC primetime soap EastEnders, though she has also revived her Doctor Who character in audio form for Big Finish Productions starting in 2000, and has continued making semi-regular appearances as Melanie in audio form ever since. Michael Jaston is one of those actors who is just unmistakable. He has a piercing gaze that just kind of spells danger for whatever unlucky soul the gaze is directed at in many of his appearances. Early series appearances included The Power Game in 1969, the title role in a 1970 adaptation of Macbeth, UFO, Thriller, Tinker, Taylor's Soldier, Spy, Tales of the Unexpected, and Still Crazy Like a Fox. His big screen appearances are Legion as well, Zulu Dawn, Highlander, The Final Dimension, and a little 1971 flick called Nicholas and Alexandra, which also starred Tom Baker, a few years before Tom himself became Doctor Who. Michael was a regular in the 23rd season of Doctor Who alone, and although a rematch with the Valyard was always considered a possibility, the character never returned during the run of the original TV series. But, stop me if you've heard this one, Michael has also revived his role of the Valyard for Big Finish's Doctor Who audio stories, including one released just earlier this year in 2019. Do you want to know another audio role Michael Jaston is famous for? James Bond. James Bond at least in some BBC radio adaptations of Ian Fleming's novels, though he was apparently briefly considered a contender at one point for the role of Bond on film around the time Roger Moore was expected to retire from Her Majesty's Secret Service. And while the Valyard never returned to TV Doctor Who, the character is name-checked in one of Matt Smith's final episodes. What exactly is the Valyard's relationship to the Doctor? Well... Watch this space. If I ever see it definitively nailed down once and for all, I will be happy to let you know. Linda Bellingham starred in season 23 as the Inquisitor. Though she was an actress with a lengthy and distinguished career, Linda was forever known as the busy mother of a family that kept reappearing in a series of TV commercials throughout the 80s and 90s in England. Her resume really is a lot more interesting than that. Like Michael Jaston, she appeared on Doctor Who only during the 86th season, but she had been a regular in many other series, dating all the way back to a stint on the U.K. Soap General Hospital, beginning in 1972. Prior to her Doctor Who season, she appeared in Zed Carr's The Sweeney, The Fuzz, The Professionals, Blake's Seven, Murphy's Mob, and Angels. After Doctor Who, she moved on to a regular role for three seasons— Of a newly revived, all creatures, great and small, taking over the role of Helen Harriet when the show restarted after a break of a few years. Later, regular TV roles included Second Thoughts, Martin Chuzzlewit, Faith in the Future, and At Home with the Braithwaites, where she co-starred with ex Doctor Who Peter Davison. You don't have to be a follower of UK television to realize that that many starring and co-starring roles means one thing: you're rock solid, reliable. You show up knowing your lines. You deliver a good performance most of the time, and the viewing public really likes you. That seemed to fit Linda Bellingham to a T. Linda died far too young at the age of 66 from colon cancer in 2014. A little while ago I mentioned stunt casting, which was a hallmark of John Nathan Turner's era as producer of Doctor Who. He had an uncanny knack for attracting big names to Doctor Who, either for a guest-starring stint or just a cameo, and some of the best Doctor Who stunt-casting of the 1980s was a result of Nathan Turner casting totally against type, putting comedians or known TV personalities into dramatic roles. One of the earliest breakout stars of The Avengers, Honor Blackman, was very much a stunt-casting get for Doctor Who in 1986. She famously left the Avengers to jump at the chance to play Bond girl Pussy Galore in 1964's Goldfinger, which simply paved the way for a steady career on both sides of the Atlantic, including TV appearances in Columbo, Never the Twain, Lace, and The Upper Hand. This was really a case of stunt casting paying off. She lents a lot of gravity to the part of Professor Lasky, though she isn't seen much in this first 25-minute episode of the four-part story. Now, it's worth mentioning that this season was just released on Blu-ray in the UK at the time I'm recording this, and this story in particular, parts 9 through 12, also known as Terror of the Vervoids, is graced with a lot of new scenes and other deleted material on Blu-ray. However, I am basing this on the existing DVD release, which archived the episode as originally broadcast. Now, let's talk a little bit about this story and ignore the trappings of the season around it. Parts 9 through 12 of Trial of a Time Lord, as I mentioned before, are now more commonly referred to by the working title of the story, Terror of the Vervoids. That's also the title given to episodes 9 through 12 on DVD. It's also what the target novelization of this story was titled, which incidentally was also written by Pip and Jane Baker. This really is the most straightforward, least convoluted, most traditionally Doctor Who story of the entire season, or at least less convoluted compared to the other stories of this very troubled season. There's a minimum of courtroom shenanigans here, thankfully. I don't want to knock Cullen Baker, Michael Jason, or Linda Bellingham, but the plentiful courtroom scenes up to this point in the season had consisted largely of lots of shouting back and forth. Since this was sci-fi courtroom drama with very little grounding in earthly legal traditions, television's already tenuous grasp of due legal process was even looser than usual. The story that begins here at least is fairly straightforward, and the occasional courtroom outburst notwithstanding, it really is a relief after the previous eight episodes. You know who else is a relief? Melanie. I read quite a few UK fanzines that were printed contemporaneous with this season not long after the season was first broadcast, and based on what I read, I expected to hate the character when I finally saw her, but I really didn't. She was cute and spunky and vivacious and independent. Other installments of Retrogram have covered some of Colin Baker's time as the doctor with his previous companion Perry, and it was really disappointing how she was handled by the writers as a whiny, argumentative character who seemed to want to leave the TARDIS more than she wanted to be there. Melanie wants to be there. We never see her origin story on TV. That was something left for Big Finish Productions to invent an audio form decades later. But she is such a huge sigh of relief, a breath of fresh air, and I think a lot of fandom's reaction to her casting in 1986 had more to do with parts that she had played before than it did with what she was actually doing in Doctor Who. The season as a whole, it's a mess, but it was kind of destined to be a mess with all of the drama unfolding behind the scenes, writers dying, a key production team member walking out, lawyers getting involved. If a reality show had been made of the goings-on in the production office, that probably would have made more compelling television than this season of Doctor Who itself. Furthermore, I always wondered why, if the Doctor is on trial for a lifetime of interference in the history of the universe... Why did no one think to build framing and courtroom scenes around some of the orphaned episodes from the 1960s? Why is the Sixth Doctor only on trial for the Sixth Doctor's actions? At this point in Doctor Who's real-world history, there were still many cases where the original tapes and films from the black-and-white 1960s stories had been erased or otherwise disposed of, in some cases leaving half the episodes or just one episode. Why not include some of that material in the trial, stretching out the season, and making use of material that otherwise could never be broadcast again in its original context? The trial of a Time Lord season represents a lot of lost opportunities, but really the biggest missed opportunity was the opportunity to make it a good season. Better days were ahead, but it's hard to argue that the behind-the-scenes drama of Doctor Who's mid-1980s period didn't take a heavy toll that eventually led to the show quietly being cancelled, at the end of its 1989 season. This story does eventually get really creepy, but the first part of the story, airing only a day after Halloween, is pretty much all set up. As much as I like Doctor Who, my favorite live-action show from this week in 1986 was easily the Starman episode by Miles, and I think the real Ghostbusters really walks away as the best spooky genre animation for this week, too really good spooky TV week overall. It's all you could ask for from the week surrounding Halloween. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at freemusicarchive.org. The Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was by Philip Gross, also licensed under Creative Commons. A huge thanks to the Logbook.com's Patreon supporters. They keep the site and its various podcasts and videocasts around. If you'd like show transcripts and occasional bonus shows and early show access, get yourself over to Patreon.com slash TheLogbook, just like Kevin and Darwin and Javier have done. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts and other goodies from our store at redbubble.com slash people slash the logbook, or by ordering, well, anything through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com.